Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Hi, everyone. Look, after the show the other week, Paulie and I are having a bit of a chat. In fact, we're playing one of our favourite games, Crazy Things That Happened During the Trump Presidency. <laughs> yes. When Paul brought up one that I'd almost forgotten about, he said, remember that time when he proposed buying Greenland? <laughs> and that's right, Maggie. And that got us thinking, didn't it, about all those historical incidents of American expansion and, of course, all those great hero, howler, real estate deals we've had. So today, we're going to look at some of those deals and the strange machinations that brought them into being. So let's start with a big one, the Louisiana Purchase, when on December the 20th, 1803, Thomas Jefferson doubled the size of America, buying up an area of land bigger than France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Germany, Holland, (laughs) Switzerland and the British Isles combined for around about $15 million or roughly four cents an acre. (laughs) So what was behind this humongous real estate deal? Yeah, what was that quote the guy said to Thomas Jefferson? It was the New York legislator, a guy called General Horatio Gates. He said to Jefferson, for you have bought Louisiana for a song. All right then, mate. So so how did it all come about? Well, mate, we've got to start back in 1602 when the French nobleman and explorer Robert Cavelier, the Sueur de la Salle, Mm -hmm. erected a cross and a column at the mouth of the Mississippi River and claimed the land of that river's basin in the name of, and here we go, the most high, mighty, invincible and victorious prince, Louis the Great, by grace of God, King of France and Navarre, 14th of his name. See, in that tribute to Louis XIV, this new French acquisition acquired the name Louisiana. Sure. According to the accounts at the time, he made this declaration in front of a, well, a few French explorers and a group of supposedly disinterested and somewhat bemused Native Americans. <laughs> right. Now, fast forward to 1718. Another French explorer, Jean-Baptiste Le Moyne, Sueur de Blainville. Now, he founded a settlement near the site of this proclamation and named it La Nouvelle Orléans for Philip, the Duke of Orléans and the region of France. And yes. as such, the Big Easy was born. Right. Ironically enough, mate, he chose this position because, well, he thought it was safe from tidal surges and hurricanes. But New Orleans did become a thriving port of trade, mostly with agricultural exports. However, unlike the Brits, who we've talked about before, Mm. the French approach to colonisation was pretty much confined to trade along the rivers as opposed to seizing and controlling lands. Yes. In fact, at its height, these French territories consisted of, well, according to a census, 8,000 whites, slaves and free persons of colour, and of course the indigenous population was not counted. Now, here's the thing, mate. The French attitude towards this colony, Louisiana, was somewhat contradictory at the same time. Look, there was colonial pride, Mm. and the indigenous population fascinated the French nobility. Mm. Lots of representations of Native Americans on porcelain. (laughs) But they were also a little bit ambivalent towards the place as well. One governor, a guy called Antoine de la Motte Cadillac, Ah. the French founder of Detroit, the guy who gave the Cadillac its name, and an absolute howler of a guy. No one liked him. He wrote a scathing 41-page report on Louisiana, 
which concluded that the whole colony was not worth a straw at present time. Ah. And so it comes as no surprise that Louis XV most probably agreed with him, and he gave the whole territory to his Bourbon cousin, Charles II of Spain, in 1762-63, after the French defeat in the Seven Years' War. Now, by the way, folks, that's not the last time you're going to hear about that war today, but go on, Mikey. Yeah, well, he gives it to him in the supposedly secret treaty of Fontainebleau, which also gave the Brits a bit of uh, French land in Louisiana. Now, of course, eventually Napoleon has to get involved. In 1800, he negotiates the Treaty of San Ildefenso. This is another supposedly clandestine treaty the French and Spanish made together. Look, I've got to say this, mate. The French <laughs> and the Spanish, they are not good at keeping their treaties secret. That's right. Everyone knew about it. So with that treaty, the French get back all of their territories in Louisiana in exchange for a small part of Tuscany that the Spanish King Charles IV wanted to give to his daughter. <laughs> now, immediately when this happens, alarm bells go off in the newly founded American capital of Washington. Right. Jefferson, who had enjoyed relaxed relations with the Spanish regarding trade out of New Orleans into the Gulf of Mexico, was worried that Napoleon might not be so easy to deal with. Mm. Any action that would inhibit such trade, well, this would lead to a situation where, according to Jefferson it would be impossible that France and the United States can continue as friends. Now, these are worrying words because we all know what a Francophile old Thomas Jefferson was. Right. For Jefferson, the crunch comes in 1802, on October the 16th to be precise. Now, the Spanish administrator, who's he's acting as a caretaker until his French replacement can arrive, well, he unexpectedly announced the Americans could no longer deposit cargo duty-free in New Orleans. Now, this doesn't mm. sound like much, but hang on. This meant that a fortune in pelts, produce, and manufactured goods was either going to be left out to the elements mm. or even worse, stolen. Mm. The Americans really needed this access to New Orleans. Jefferson actually wrote to Livingston, the US minister in Paris, it is New Orleans through which the produce of three-eighths of our territory must pass to market. Mm. In fact, things were so bad, American frontiersmen, they were infuriated by the loss of their right to store their goods in New Orleans. They threatened to take the city by force. One senator in the US House drafted a resolution to form a 50,000-strong militia to take New Orleans by force, and quickly the newspapers pile on. In fact, the New York Evening Post declaring that possession of New Orleans was essential to regulate the future destiny of North America. Well, that's right, Mikey. And let's not forget also the southern states in this newly formed America, they were petrified that Napoleon might free all his slaves down in Louisiana, which of course would have a massive flow-on effect, or even send troops, French troops, against the US. Because of course, as you say, now that France is back under the rule of an emperor, things weren't so favourable as they'd been a few years earlier with, you know, with the French revolutionaries. Right. So Livingston, who by this stage is the US minister in Paris, he's instructed by Jefferson to meet with Napoleon's foreign minister, a guy called Maurice de Talleyrand, mm. to sort the whole mess out. Now, Talleyrand, he is one wily operator. And like Napoleon, he had little fondness for the Americans. In fact, Talleyrand had spent two years exiled in America, and when he got back, he loudly proclaimed, refinement in America does not exist. Ouch. With that said, also, too, he was not above taking, um, well, the occasional odd bribe. And even Napoleon himself warned Livingston that the old world was corrupt and that Talleyrand was just the person to show just how corrupt it could be. Ooh. Now, things soon get bogged down. Talleyrand seems to be playing Livingston off, off, off a short break. He's constantly stalling. So Jefferson asks James Monroe, a former governor of Virginia, an ex-congressman and, and a future president, to travel to Paris to help Livingston with the negotiations. Here's the thing. 
He also informs Munro that he has up to 9,375,000 within his discretion to purchase New Orleans. And also, to worry about it, try and get a bit of Florida thrown in for the deal. <laughs> but here's the thing. Jefferson tells Munro he's got to finance the trip himself, and Munro was skint at the time. So before he can set sail on March the 8th, 1803, Munro actually has to sell all his fine china and furniture to finance the trip. <laughs> However, while he's at sea... Things change in Paris. Well, that's right, Mikey, isn't it? Even at this early stage, Napoleon, he's suffering some major setbacks, particularly the, the revolt in Haiti, which has gone so badly for the French. So, you know, if ever there was a time for the Americans to offer Napoleon some cold, hard cash than this, with his coffers so bare, there couldn't really have been a better time. And don't forget, like you said, Napoleon never really held the Americas in much esteem. He was much more interested in what was happening in Europe. And as for New Orleans, he considered it to just be a granary to feed the French sugar plantations in the Caribbean, you know, the real golden goose in the colonies. That being said, mate, the Brits get wind of this and they are not keen on this idea. In fact, they're really worried that Napoleon would actually make a deal with the Americans. So much so, they offered Napoleon's brother Joseph £100,000 if he could talk his brother out of selling... But Napoleon, by this stage, is determined. And also, too, there's another motive. It's the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm. According to the uh, French Napoleonic scholar, a guy called Jean Tillard, Napoleon actually wanted to see the Americas strong. In fact, he writes, by the sale, Napoleon hoped to create a huge country in the Western Hemisphere to serve as a counterweight to Britain and maybe even make trouble for it. Hello, war, 1812. Exactly, mate. So when on April the 11th, Livingston calls on Talleyrand for what he thinks is is going to be another frustrating and futile meeting. Well, there's the obligatory small talk, and Livingston is just, he's just simply asked straight out if the Americans would, perchance, wish to buy the whole of the Louisiana Territory. See, on the exact same day, the French finance minister, Francois de Barbet-Mabois, am I close? Yes. Close, okay, was summoned by Napoleon and told, I renounce Louisiana. It is not only New Orleans that I will cede, it is the whole colony without reservation. I renounce this with regret, but I require the money for this war, the war with England. Mm. So here's the dilemma. This was a purchase bigger than the Americans expected, but for a price bigger than they had in mind at the time. You see, Napoleon, well, he wants $22,500,000. Livingston and Munro counted with $8 million. Bob Mobar, he, well, he comes back and says, look, Napoleon's lost interest, and after a bit of haggling, $15 million was the agreed-on price. This $15 million, this is much more than the Americans actually had. Remember, Jefferson had said, don't spend more than you know, nine and a bit million. Mm. But you're not going to believe who's going to come to the rescue. The Brits. Not the British government, surely. No, mate, the British banks. Ah. One in particular, Bering & Company. Mm. They, along with some other banks, they stumped up the cash. They bought Louisiana, which they turned over to the Americans in return for a bond issue to be repaid over 15 years at 6% interest. Mm. Now, mate, you have to remember, this is long before the Telegraph. So, so Munro and Livingston, you know, they are doing these deals pretty much in isolation. Mm. And this is for a much bigger deal in money, but for much more land than the American government had ever expected. Yes, but Jefferson and the other leaders back in Washington, they're not going to complain, surely. Even allowing for the interest on those bonds, Mike, is still long run, it's going to be a bargain. Well, sort of yes and no, mate. Yeah, by the time the bonds are paid off, it, it, it's closer to $27 million. Right. But here's the thing, the final details of the deal, they don't make it back to the States until the 3rd of July, when it was officially announced the next day. And so what did everyone say? Well, there were a few dissenters. Massachusetts seemed a bit ticked off. One Northeast senator even grumbled about seceding, but he, he soon calmed down. 
As for Jefferson, well, mate, he was so enraptured with the whole idea of Western expansion, before the ink is even dry, he's already dispatched Meriwether Lewis out west. <laughs> the old Lewis and Clark, and we're back on Manifest Destiny, the wagon we rode in that episode on the Declaration of Independence. And as we also mentioned in that episode, Paulie, it will come as no surprise to the Native Americans, they got the bum deal. In mm. fact, the disaster that history caused, the Trail of Tears, starts here. <laughs> Okay, so Mikey's already got us into the 18th, early 19th centuries. And in the prelude to that Louisiana Purchase, he mentioned the giant arm wrestle that was the ongoing conflict between Great Britain and France, which you know culminated in the Seven Years' War, which is where I want to pick up my part of the story. So we're in the 1750s, 1760s, and in terms of global, or at least European politics, Holland's already been seen off. Spain and Portugal, <laughs> they're pretty much drowning in their own problems. And sure, pressure is on the up, but the only real race in town is between the Brits and the French, and everybody knows it. In fact, it looks like it might have reached some sort of climax in Quebec in October 1759, when the British forces, commanded by the great General James Wolfe, defeats the Marquis de Montcalm on the Plains of Abraham. Britain, of course, is jubilant, and you've got people like Horace Walpole, the great writer, man of letters, declaring, like Alexander, we have no more worlds to conquer. Yet, he needs to get his hand off his wall pole. Yet, just four years later, at the Treaty of Paris of 1763, which was drawn up to settle the Seven Years' War and the whole Britain versus France conflict once and for all, suddenly Quebec is back up for grabs, or at least being used as a bargaining tool, to haggle over the tiny Caribbean island of Guadalupe in the West Indies. Guadalupe? Why? Well, <laughs> like Clinton said, Mikey, I'm afraid, it's the economy, stupid. I've got a BA, back off. All right, so the British Army, the British Navy, they are by far top dog. Yeah, and with pressure proving a very useful ally on the continent, Britannia, she's got her feet firmly on the French neck. But aside from the British generals and admirals of the fleet, other voices are also being heard back in London, particularly in Parliament, and they're the voices of the British merchants and, of course, the great city of London. Yeah, because within the square mile, we've got this mix of traders, economists and would-be entrepreneurs. They've developed a theory of a self-sufficient empire in which a sort of superweb is constructed around the mother country, with the spider in the middle being constantly fed by its colonies cast in a global circle around it. So, you know, you've got your Barbados, Jamaica, the Leeward Islands. They would produce such staples as sugar, molasses and rum. Then you've got Maryland, Virginia, the Carolinas. They're going to contribute tobacco, rice, indigo. Pennsylvania, New York, New England, they're going to have the wheat, the flour, the bread, the livestock. And of course, yeah, you've got places like Bermuda and Gibraltar acting as your strategic naval bases with the fisheries of Newfoundland and Nova Scotia thrown in on the side. Now, all these raw goods, Mikey, they will be shipped back to fatten the mother spider and, of course, line the pockets of the London merchants via a whole series of trade monopolies and markups whereby Britain will produce the manufactured goods to sell onto the markets of Europe and the Far East, or worst case scenario, back to the colonies themselves. Ah, yes, like they used to do with our wool for quite some time. 
Well, that's it, Mikey. The markets are so rigged. Even if you didn't have the capacity to set up the necessary manufacturing arms, you could always just re-export the raw products onwards at a handsome product anyway. But. <laughs> right, yes, of course, there's always a but, because there's always one weak link in the chain. And this time, it's sugar. Because, you see, by this stage, the British West Indian Islands, their sugar plantations, they're at full capacity. But still, they're not able to match the tremendous output of the French West Indies plantations. So London is losing the European sugar market to the cheaper French product. Yeah, British sugar couldn't compete. So, right, the French are making a fortune. While the British are licking their wounds, exactly. So these Bower boys of the Stock Exchange, they say, hang on, let's use the dominance of the British Navy to knock out the French once and for all, seize their sweet, sweet sugar plantations. And you, know, you mentioned the ones in Haiti before with Saint-Domingue. Mm. But the sweetest of them all, Mikey, those plantations were actually... Oh, oh, Paul, Paul, let me guess. <laughs> ...to be found in... Guadalupe. Guadalupe, right. Right, but surely if that's the case, the French are going to fight tooth and nail. Well, well, they want to, but like the many boys in London are saying, these tiny little Caribbean islands, they're no match for the British Navy. Which is where Quebec comes into play. Right. You see, even though Wolf's taken... Quebec City, the British are still worried there could be some sort of counter-offensive. So the French are thinking if they agree to withdraw from Canada completely, they might be able to use negotiations for the Treaty in Paris to keep the Sugar Islands. Precisely. And truth be told, as the French themselves had often complained to anyone who'd listen, Quebec had actually proved something of a pain in the backside because other than the furs, the only significant product was fish. Yet the harsh Canadian climate rendered the harbour at Quebec pretty much useless for six months every year. In fact, the French crown was forced to make substantial subsidisers virtually every year just to keep the colony afloat, keep it from bankruptcy. Now, sure, there is also talk of Quebec opening up onto more continental expansion. Don't forget, at this stage, the French are the ones inland looking west and the Brits, in terms of Canada, are still pretty much stuck on the coast. But any such expansion, again, that means standing armies, forts and money. So the French, maybe after all, maybe they're going to be happy to let General Wolfe have his planes of Abraham. But suddenly this new French tactic isn't looking quite so smart because now the bankers back in London are saying exactly the same thing. Maybe for the Brits, maybe Quebec's no longer looking like such a big win. Don't forget, even if the Brits do want to keep it, they'll have a whole bunch of restless, hunting, shooting, fishing, Quebecois fur trappers to deal with. A problem that's really never gone away. <laughs> right. OK, 1762-63, the Treaty of Paris. So first up, heading the British negotiations, you've got William Pitt, effectively the leader of the Whigs in Parliament. He says Britain needs to play hardball, you know, keep all the gains they've made and make the French suffer. Keep Quebec, keep Guadalupe, which the British Navy, sure enough, have lost no time in seizing, along with the likes of Havana and Martinique, even Menorca in the Mediterranean and the Philippines over in the Pacific. So Pitt says, keep it all and watch the French fold. And like I said, he's got the backing of many of the financial big hitters in the city. But he's also up against another tough cookie, the French foreign minister, the Duke of Choiseul. Now, he doesn't want to budge and he knows that not everyone in England, or the colonies for that matter, not everyone is quite so bullish as Pitt. Maybe, this Duke Choiseul says, maybe he's prepared to let Quebec go and the odd other little tidbits here and there, but there's no way he's losing in the Caribbean. So suddenly, everyone wants Guadalupe and no one wants Canada, even though in terms of territory, we're talking thousands of times difference in size. Right. 
But in the end, George III, the British king, he decides he needs to break the impasse. He knows that everyone, <laughs> apart from Pitt and the merchants, everyone back in England, they're tired of war. They've had enough. And he also knows that even though Spain is denying it, like you were saying before, oh. the Spanish are in this secret alliance with the French, both crowns now being ruled by the House of Bourbon. In this alliance, the Spanish have promised to back the French if they do want to prolong the conflict. So George appoints the Earl of Butte to arrange the treaty instead of Pitt. And we end up with a situation which we're pretty much left with today. Spain, I'm glad to say, is forced to pay the price for its duplicity. And she has to give up Florida just to get Havana back. But the big one, the big one is that Britain gets to keep Quebec, plus a few smaller Caribbean islands like St. Vincent and Tobago, while France is allowed to cling on to the jewel in her sugary crown, Guadalupe. So even though you're saying, looking back now, it's it's obviously a no-brainer, back then... Yes, well, just imagine, Mikey, imagine back then if Britain had kept Guadalupe and London had wrested back control of the sugar trade. You know, they could have restored their monopoly sugar sales in Europe, they could have locked out the French for a generation and put the British government in a much stronger position financially and otherwise. Because, of course, in 1764, the year after the Treaty of Paris... The British government, Quebec or no Quebec, it has to introduce its hated sugar tax, which is the beginning of the beginning for that other great conflict that was about to pop up over the horizon, the, the American, American War of Independence. Independence. Welcome back, folks. So today we've been looking at some of the greatest real estate trades that have shaped history, particularly the Americas. And I guess the last piece of the puzzle has got to be Alaska, which, of course, in the early days of European colonisation, it belonged to Russia, didn't it? Yes, mate. Russia had been controlling Alaska since the first part of the 18th century. Mm. Now, this starts in about 1732 with the arrival of merchants and fur trappers. They were known as Promyshenki, mm. as well, of course, as you know, a few missionaries in the Russian Orthodox Church. So are we talking about a flood of Russians into Alaska here, Mikey? No, mate. No. In fact, by the start of the 19th century, there were less than 1,000 Russians living in Alaska. In fact, the whole territory had been given the rather cruel nickname of Siberia's Siberia. Right, so basically they're just there for the fur trapping. They're not there for empire building. Well, to be fair, Tsar Alexander I was always keen to exert a bit of imperial power. Mm. He had declared Russian sovereignty over the North Pacific coast north of the 51st parallel. Mm. Now, this banned all non-Russian ships from being within 185 kilometres of the Alaskan coast. But, but yes, Paulie, you're right. Well, what they really wanted was the dead animal pelts. Mm. I mean, let's not forget, fur was a very, very lucrative trade. Fur had fueled the Russian expansion east into Siberia since the 16th century. In fact, this was known as fur fever. Mm. And by the 19th century, Russia was easily the world's largest supplier of animal skins. But it's in this early 19th century, Paulie, that the problems start. You see, some of the Russian trappers, they're ignoring this 51st parallel borderlines, which has been loosely sketched on the West Coast, and they're hunting on into Oregon, the Rockies, and even California. Not only that, they're backed up by Russian traders and a fair few soldiers, some of whom go so far as to build a fort, Fort Ross, in 1812. In California? California, correct. Sonoma country, to be precise, just north of San Francisco, oh, yeah, where all the good wine comes from these days. So what do the Americans want to do about it? Well, it doesn't go down well, mate. I mean, for a start, you've got the American trappers who've got their own eyes on these fur skins. Mm. But perhaps more importantly... Ports like San Francisco were key to the USA's expansionist plans for trade routes out of the West Coast and all across the Pacific. So negotiations start 
pretty heated negotiations, it has to be said, until Tsar Alexander I and the American president, John Quincy Adams, they agreed to sign the Russo-American Treaty of 1824, which kept all of the land to the north Russian, pretty much what's modern-day Alaska. Mm. But in return, it finally gave US ships and merchants access into Russia's Alaskan ports to trade. Now, the Americans, they seem pretty happy enough with this. I mean, if nothing else, they'd, they'd shut out the Brits in Canada who desperately wanted to push Vancouver, their main city, as the key trading port rather than San Francisco. But maybe they were a bit too happy, Paulie, because no sooner had the treaty been ratified than misgivings about the whole Russian-Alaskan enterprise start surfacing back in St. Petersburg. Why? Well, for a start, even though they had nominal control over Alaska, that they were never really going to settle there. Mm. All they had out there was a bag-tag bunch of trappers. And by this stage, they'd, they'd actually decimated the sea otter population. And it was the otter's fur and its, its popularity, particularly in China, that was their main reason to be in Alaska in the first place. Mm. Also, by the middle of the century, Russia had massive debts, many incurred during the Crimean War. Plus, thanks to Crimea... There was a weighing on the Russian psyche. It was an overriding sense of doom when it came to fighting with the Brits. Mm. And many in St. Petersburg, well, they worried that British troops in Canada might next have the idea of marching into more Russian territory, i.e. Alaska, mm. causing yet more problems. Problems the House of Romanov could really do without. Ah, so is this when the idea of more than just a trade treaty is first floated? Exactly, mate. And by the time Alexander II has taken over on the throne, some of his courtiers have gone as far as to propose a full-blown sale. Maybe you can raise some real rubles. But surely at that stage, Mikey, America hasn't really got much money to throw around, isn't it? Heading into a full-on civil war. Yeah, but here's the thing, Paulie. By this stage, the Russians are what we would call in the real estate world committed sellers. Mm. Rumours started to swirl that the Russian army is in such a weak position that if something isn't done pretty quickly, the states are just going to march in anyway and claim Alaska for free. Ah. There's a guy called Grand Duke Constantine. He's the younger brother of the Tsar, Tsar Alexander II. Now, in an 1857 letter to the Russian foreign minister, he actually writes, we must not deceive ourselves and must foresee that the United States aiming to constantly round out their possessions and desiring to dominate undividedly the whole of North America will take the aforementioned colonies from us and we shall not be able to regain them. Wow, so if the Russians are that desperate, the price tag is going to be pretty low. Yes, but mate, there is the small matter of the civil war to get through first. <laughs> yes. But once that's over and done, negotiations really begin in earnest with the intervention of the American Secretary of State, a guy called William H. Seward. Mm. But even then, there were still many who saw this purchase of Alaska as a distraction from the inherent problems with post-war reconstruction. Mm. Some were downright hostile to the idea, with several newspapers dubbing Alaska as Seward's Folly, or Seward's Icebox. Then there's my personal favourite, Walrussia. <laughs> but still the deal goes through. Exactly, mate. And the Russians were convinced they had struck the real estate deal of the century. Forget money for jam, with all the animal furs already trapped, they thought they were getting money for cold water and ice. <laughs> and in March of 1867, they unloaded their tenuous hold over the Alaskan Territory for the princely sum of $7.2 million, <laughs> less than two cents an acre. No way. And for a while there, back in St. Petersburg, they were all slapping themselves on the back, right up until round about 1896. Ah, and the Klondike Gold Rush. 
All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right. And always the same handle, at The Rest Is Hist. The Rest Is Hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there. Lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. (laughs) Right, which brings us to next week. Next week, Polly, it's extra helping. So we're going to take a, a deeper dive into Jefferson and slavery. And on a totally different note, we're also going to look at Canadians barbecuing beaver and what the Pope thought about it. 